Welcome to episode 118 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Angelos Karamitis. Did I get that right? Yep. Okay. Uh, an associate professor at Columbia and the program manager uh, for information uh, for the Information Innovation Office at DARPA, formerly of the National Science Foundation, and uh, with a research focus on cybersecurity of all kinds. Welcome, uh, Angelus. Thank uh, you. I also here uh, are Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Alan Cohn, formerly head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of DHS policy, now of counsel at Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Uh, and uh, Maury Schenk, uh, uh, our former managing partner in our London office, uh, who is still advising Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. He's also a private equity investor and a director of technology companies, jack of all trades uh, in uh, the technology sector. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in um, uh, 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 Michael, you uh, might as well take a bow. You get the uh, the prize for correctly predicting that the uh, judge who uh, uh, was dealing with the FBI's um, uh, network investigative tool would say either cough it up or I am suppressing all the evidence against this child porn suspect. Uh, um, and that seems to be what he did. Yeah, that's exactly what he did. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought he pretty clearly telegraphed uh, that that was what he was going to do. Um, he didn't dismiss the indictment, but uh, I, I'd be surprised if the government were able to proceed with the case without the, the fruits of the uh, the search warrant and the, the, the use of the, the network investigative technique. So, so it may just be uh, tantamount to dismissal of in, the indictment. Well, so uh, this is the network investigative tool is also called a NIT. So this takes nitpicking uh, by the judiciary to a, a new height. Uh, I, I was surprised that uh, for a decision with so much likely precedential uh, uh, importance, he didn't even bother to write opinion. an opinion. He just said, yeah, what I said at oral argument is, uh, is my opinion. Uh, uh, do you think... Um, He's sort of ducking the uh, uh, the opportunity to get into FSUP, or is there some other reason why he would have uh, taken that uh, path? You know, who knows? Maybe he had a long Memorial Day weekend planned and, and wanted to hit the road, beat traffic. Um, it's hard to say, <laughs> but you, you're right. You know, for such a such an important um, cutting edge issue, uh, you contrast the, the lack of an opinion here with with the magistrates in, in a lot of the cases we've talked about. Oh, this would have been 200 uh, you know, like pages. Case, writing these tomes. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like hundreds of pages um, because all they care about is wanting to be, uh, you know, writing those precedent-setting opinions. But Judge Bryan in, the, in uh, Washington State – not one of those. Well, it's it, it it it's true. Memorial Day weekend uh, in Washington State is probably more fun than uh, on the East Coast, but uh, um, it is uh, it, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, I in other litigation, I see that Twitter is uh, 
making another stab at getting their canary lawsuit uh, going and and this one strikes me as even less plausible than the last one but uh, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that I, you know, I'm curious why you say that because you know it seems to me uh, at least on the face of the complaint um, they've got a fairly good uh, uh, First Amendment argument that that the government is su- suppressing speech by not allowing Twitter to publish uh, at least the numbers of certain FISA requests that they get uh, in, a, in a six month period from the government um, when the government itself, you know, engages in all sorts of speech about the same subject matter. I mean, that's the essential argument. So I, I, I guess first the law on uh, um, uh, classified information is uh, very favorable to the government up to now. And uh, yeah, all classified true. information rules uh, suppress speech. That's the whole point. Um, so it's not clear that this is that differentiates this case and arguing that uh, uh, oh, the government declassified or talked about or leaked about something, uh, and therefore I should be able to, too, is the kind of slippery slope argument that can't appeal to the judiciary. No, I, I mean, you're absolutely right about precedent, and, uh, you know, on classification issues. Uh, I think what's interesting here is that is that Twitter has, has chosen, you know, um, a case that, that – in some ways, is right on the edge. I mean, all they want to publish is the fact that they received some number of uh, FISA requests for information. Of course, not identifying the subject of the investigation or the nature of the information uh, specifically, but just just the number. And they want to give a little a little more uh, meat on the bones compared to what the government is already allowing. And they also by by talking about what the government itself says about these sorts of things, they're making this seem like it's a uh, a case in which the government is not being content neutral, that, that it's disfavoring certain content. That is what the provider wants to say about uh, FISA requests. Um, it, you know, the government is, is allowing speech on the other side of this debate. So, you know, I think I think that I think it's pretty clever uh, argument. Its chances of succeeding are still less than 50 percent because of the precedent that you alluded to. Uh, but you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if if they prevailed before district court. Yeah, maybe. I, I the the argument. I think the best argument here for the government is just to say, uh, look, uh, you want to publish a number, and then you want to publish another number, and by comparing the two numbers, people can learn something about whether they're a target or not, whether the people they send to the United States have been identified because uh, uh, the numbers have gone up and they're now being uh, uh, monitored. Uh, um, you know, the uh, the comparison over time of these numbers potentially uh, reveals a lot, and um, the government can't predict in advance exactly which of those numbers is going to disclose something, uh, and therefore they've chosen to say no, uh, only ranges can be disclosed. Well, this reminds me of the, the debate uh, in the 90s about whether the, the total intelligence budget uh, needed to remain classified, and, and the intelligence community fought and fought and fought against disclosure of that and I can't remember when it was exactly, but I think it was during George Tennant's tenure that, that finally uh, they agreed to disclose the entire uh, the, the the aggregate budget for the intelligence community, and that that was not going to bring um, national security, you know, into jeopardy. 
Well, and, I, and I, I've, I've noticed that uh, Ron Wyden and Ron Paul are giving the intelligence community enormous credit for their transparency in disclosing that number. It's, uh, it's really been a, a, a public relations coup for them. Um, anyway, all right. Uh, <laughs> mo- moving on, uh, let's do some Europe bashing because Europe is just begging for it. Uh, um, uh, Maury, is there Anything that the Europeans have not done in the last week and a half to uh, uh, to regulate their way into competitiveness uh, with respect to uh, what's happening on the Internet? It's just an astonishing uh, number of mostly dumb initiatives from, from Europe. You know, several of them are under the name of the EU's big digital single market program. And while there's some effort at unification, which helps, The overall impression is that Europe becomes just a worse and worse place to do e-business, and it's rather painful sitting here and watching it. Yeah, they they should call it uh, the uh, uh, digital single company uh, provision because they're only going to be they're going to be down to one. They're going to be down to SAP pretty fast. Yes. So some of the big developments have been in the privacy area that we've been talking about a lot. Uh, The briefly. Yeah, a couple more setbacks for the Privacy Shield. The uh, European Parliament, which has a role in the process, voted something like 500 to 100 to urge the Commission to engage in further negotiations. The European Data Protection Supervisor, who is not as important as the name sounds, they're responsible for data protection by the European institutions themselves, has also come out with a report critical of the Privacy Shield. So it doesn't look like it's going to be easily approved anytime soon, and there's the prospect of further negotiations with the U.S., which could be a painful process. But don't you think that, I mean, I, I, I read the uh, the EU Data Protection uh, um, Supervisor's report, and it was, uh, um, it, it was highly critical of the deal, but it was couched in language of, you ought to go back and raise this. You should consider this uh, um, as though he recognized that, you know, it takes two to negotiate. And uh, uh, if the U.S. just said, hell no, um, it wasn't clear what um, he was recommending uh, the uh, European Commission do. And I, I think that's probably also true for the European Parliament's uh, um, uh, uh, Resolution, because uh, uh, of course they want more negotiations, and I'm sure they'll get more negotiations. At least one meeting will be required for the U.S. to say hell no, uh, and maybe they can they can make some face-saving adjustment to uh, one or another provision. Uh, uh, but I got the sense that uh, everybody wants this to go back. They want to be on record as having criticized this, but they aren't saying uh, if you don't do this, then we are all going to vote against it. I think practically it's probably somewhere in between that it's going to be hard for the commission to just adopt the proposal as it is. Um, but if the U.S. makes some, if there's some, as you said, small additional negotiation, the U.S. makes some small additional um, concessions, and frankly the whole privacy shield isn't that different from the safe harbor, then everybody could declare victory and have it be done with. Unless, of course, the whole thing falls apart. The Irish Data Protection Authority this week referred the model contract clauses to the European Court of Justice. So if the European Court of Justice gets tough and starts invalidating other bits of the transatlantic data protection um, framework, as Michael was probably the first to predict might happen on this uh, among our group, uh, it could 
get pretty messy. Yeah, what what do you see as the politics behind that? Do you think he just uh, the or she? I can't remember who the data protection authority is now in uh, uh, Ireland, but uh, was that a decision forced by litigation or uh, designed to uh, get clarity as soon as possible? I, I wasn't quite sure why that that was done. Well, it was forced by a challenge to the model contract clauses. I'm not sure um, whether it was in the Facebook context or another, but I think having been, um, you know, told in the uh, in the uh, safe harbor context in the Schrems case that by the European courts that their decision and approach didn't work, the regulator was reluctant. Pr- is my guess, to push forward with upholding the model contract clauses without advice of the European Court of Justice. Certainly wasn't going to take it on their on its own to strike it down. So I think a referral which happened is probably was the easiest way forward. So it's avoiding it's avoiding taking a stand that could later be rejected one way or the other. It's just easier to let the court take the blame or uh, whatever happens. So that makes sense for uh, for listeners who are uh, um, outraged by European hypocrisy. I should note that uh, um, I am making progress in finding a 501c3 who will be funding a prize for anyone who uh, successfully sues all 10 of Europe's largest trading partners saying that they are not uh, compliant with the uh, exalted human rights uh, notions that uh, Europe has adopted when it's talking about the United States, since that includes Saudi Arabia, China, Russia, Algeria. Uh, I think it's not, it, it's like shooting fish in a barrel, uh, and it's highly significant that the um, European Union has never gone near any of those barrels, uh, and the way to get them to do that is to uh, pony up a prize and see if we can't get uh, challenges to the adequacy of the human rights laws of the entire world, and it will turn out that no one meets Europe's highest standards, and they can uh, keep their data at home uh, and uh, uh, exchange it with no one. Um, so that uh, uh, the plan is to uh, crowdfund that prize, uh, and uh, we're hoping to uh, get a 501c3 to uh, adopt this so that it can be tax-deductible for our listeners. Uh, so watch for that uh, coming up. Uh, what else did the Europeans do? It wasn't just privacy, was it? Yeah, no, in the commercial sector, the European Commission um, came out with two big proposals last Wednesday. Um, uh, one is a ban, one is, uh, a ban on geo-blocking for cross-border services. So you've got to provide services everywhere if you provide them online anywhere in the EU. But it doesn't apply to physical goods, although they've done some stuff to say you've got to make your prices for cross-border delivery transparent. Uh, there was also a big content uh, proposal the same day, a new audio, an amendment to the audiovisual media services directive, which would expand the requirement that half of time uh, be devoted to European works, to companies like Netflix and Amazon. And um, there, it's also being mooted, although not yet released, that the uh, European Commission is about to come out with a big proposal on the sharing economy, which on the one hand would make it harder to block services like Uber and Airbnb, but on the other would, for example, make the employees of Uber employees, uh, make the people who work for Uber employees. So uh, they're sticking their hands in a lot of places. 
Yeah, this is um, some of this stuff is traditional EU uh, um, uh, policies, like saying borders shouldn't matter, and we're going to punish companies for recognizing the existence of borders. Uh, uh, and uh, um, of course, European content is important. I don't quite understand how they're going to enforce that. Uh, do I have to watch one bad French film for every Hollywood blockbuster I watch? Um, you know, I, it's it's interesting in these properties. Uh, you know, Netflix is global, so you go somewhere else. Uh, they could do what they've done with Google with the right to be forgotten to say you can't make the the foreign services available. Well, if they did um, what they did with Google, they, they'd question. say Americans have to watch one bad French film for every Hollywood blockbuster they uh, they watch, uh, which uh, you know is coming soon to a uh, uh, regulatory determination uh, near you. Uh, uh, but you will have the right to forget that film. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, that Seth Rogen film that uh, the North Koreans didn't like, I would love to forget that one. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, well, it, it is remarkable. Uh, they have gone from that enthusiastic. Uh, 90s embrace of the internet and regulatory light touch and not screwing things up to just, you know, a complete reversion to type of uh, uh, there isn't any regulation of this uh, field that they don't find attractive these days, probably because they see it as regulation of the Americans since uh, they've kind of failed. To, they to get they wanted to give us something to talk about. Yeah, uh, that's right, and I I do appreciate it. Uh, okay, so uh, thinking of uh, speaking of things to uh, to talk about, uh, I am uh, I am kind of mildly gloating over the fate of the uh, um, uh, ECPA reform bill. We remember that passed the House uh, uh, by a margin larger than the margin by which we declared war on Germany and Japan after December seven. Uh, um, it, it was unanimous. Uh, and it's gone to the Senate, um, and there it has run into, uh, you know, uh, real politics. Um, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, and also the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, committee had said, um, you know, there's this other thing we want, uh, and it is, uh, this is kind of complex, but uh, basically, um, oh, in 2004 or so, when uh, uh, national security letters were uh, allowed to collect data from ISPs and Internet companies, uh, essentially metadata, uh, the, uh, uh, the decision uh, was incorporated into, I think, 2709. Uh, and it was incorporated really badly uh, because there was a very broad provision saying you can collect uh, toll, uh, uh, toll billing records and the like. And then when they said, and here's the request that you send to the ISPs, they only listed a few things and they left off a whole bunch of electronic uh, 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 transactional records. Uh, uh, and those transactional records – uh, were covered by the first clause, but not by the very specific clause about what government uh, should serve on the ISPs. And um, after about five years of uh, serving up those electronic uh, communications transaction records, uh, um, the uh, uh, the folks in Silicon Valley began pushing back, and the um, Office of Legal Counsel said, "You know, they're right. You you can't rely on that." 
chapeau language when there's very specific language in the uh, paragraph below that doesn't include electronic uh, communications transaction records. Uh, and so um, uh, everyone stopped providing it, uh, and no one has, has uh, gotten it since. So the FBI has been saying for several years that this was just essentially a typo and it ought to be corrected legislatively to allow the uh, FBI to use a national security ledger to get the electronic communications transaction records. Uh, and that view has now uh, attracted a lot of support, both the uh, uh, Intelligence Committee and what looks like a majority of the Judiciary Committee have said, yes, we ought to fix that problem. Uh, and uh, um, fixing it uh, um, is going to require uh, that we attach an amendment to the ECPA reform bill. Uh, and so the ECPA reform bill is stuck uh, in the Judiciary Committee unless it is bounced out and uh, taken straight to the floor, which would be a surprise, but is always possible. Uh, uh, and even if it is defeated as an amendment to the ECPA Reform Act, it is likely to come forward in the Intelligence uh, Authorization Act. Uh, this is a big deal because probably 60, 70 Eighty percent of the 215 orders that uh, deal with national security uh, uh, records uh, uh, are actually tied to this um, change. Uh, the change was adopted essentially, uh, um, a, well, to, in order to fix the problem, uh, the government has started using 215 orders instead of national security letters, uh, and those um, 215 orders have probably quadrupled or quintupled uh, in number uh, so that there are hundreds of 215 orders now being processed instead of dozens. Uh, uh, and so we could dramatically reduce the uh, workload of the FISA court if we adopted this uh, provision. So that's, that is where things stand on that uh, particular uh, uh, bill. It will be fun to watch because um, the privacy groups are already squealing that they wanted an uncompromised change to the ECPA rules, um, and, and that's probably not what they're going to get. It'll be very interesting to see. Last topic, um, SWIFT. Uh, Alan, uh, where are we with SWIFT? So we now have, in addition to the, the three uh, uh, attacks and the, the one failed attempt, uh, so you have Bangladesh, Ecuador, Philippines, uh, the Vietnam experience, uh, we continue to unravel different, um, different threads of all of, uh, of who is behind this and what else is, what other attacks have been going on. There's news that uh, attacks have been going on since October. Uh, Symantec has gone ahead and, and attributed uh, yeah, these attacks, at least preliminarily, to the North Koreans. Um, not not surprising, because there had been a lot of uh, yes. uh, foreshadowing of that by people saying, well, it looks like the same people who did the attacks in South Korea or who did the Sony attack. Yes, and interestingly, I think we talked about this. Um, you know, if this is truly a, a nation-state attack for financial purposes, right. in order to add to the bottom line, that's a, that's a relatively dramatic thing. Now, SWIFT, after prompting after first saying this isn't our problem and then saying, well, maybe this is our problem. This is a swift problem, but it's not really a swift problem. It's a third party vendor problem. It's an access problem has now finally come out and said, well, 
this is a problem. And, and, and we're going to have some, to set some standards. Yes. And here are some steps that you need to take. First that they had said, and they had said this uh, about a week and a half ago, was um, they're basically going to follow the um, the CISA model, right? They're going to basic, basically make themselves an ISAC yes. um, and encourage more information sharing in and information sharing out. Now, this past Friday, they went ahead and issued some additional uh, steps, um, uh, strength, a set of strength and security requirements, including a, um, a reminder about two-factor authentication. Remind, meaning they haven't actually required it up to it now. It was not a requirement. It had been an encouraged, but is, and so they re-encouraged it. Jeez, I, 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 I have two-factor authentication just to read my email. <laughs> yes, yeah, your toaster is going to have two-factor authentication soon. <laughs> but not um, apparently multi-million dollar transfers. <laughs> well, you know, uh, things catch up in this yeah, world. Exactly. So uh, and then there, uh, I talked about the, the implementation of new guidelines and corresponding audit frameworks. Yep. Um, uh, a, a, an implementation of a fraud detection system, like monitoring the, the traffic nice for, uh, for payment patterns of yeah. concern. Oh, that's good. Um, and, uh, and finally, helping to build a more secure ecosystem of the third-party providers that, uh, that sit around the SWIFT network. So I, 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 I want to uh, turn to Angelus because authentication is at the heart of this SWIFT uh, debate, as it will be uh, probably with respect to the attacks on the banks, uh, the attack on the uh, Sands Las Vegas, uh, uh, and uh, uh, other attacks. Uh, um, and my sense, if I'm reading your DARPA program announcements correctly, is that uh, you're hoping to bring to bear DARPA's remarkable uh, uh, capabilities in kind of bringing the future forward into the present uh, uh, to start working on authentication. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, the DARPA authentication program is or attribution program? Sorry. Well, <clears throat> it's actually a, an interesting uh, way you approach this because, in fact, the much of the uh, impetus or the inspiration uh, in my mind for the program came from another program that we have at DARPA that's called Active Authentication. Oh, yeah. Which was all about uh, authenticating the users of IT devices based on how they use those devices. I re you know, this was in the uh, this was in a DARPA program that uh, Admiral Poindexter was associated with. Them that was well, that was my memory is that because there was uh, when it first showed up uh, in public. Uh, this particular capability, it was, it was gate-based uh, identification. So maybe it's not quite the same, but, but it, was, it was mocked as the Ministry of uh, Silly Walks. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, it, to some extent, to, to the extent that you're talking about authentication through people's biological uh, activities, uh, their gate, how they walk, how they stand, is in fact uh, a biometric. Oh, oh, you're absolutely right. So, so the program... Uh, that I'm referring to started in 2013. Okay. And I recognize that uh, uh, being associated with uh, Admiral Poindexter probably is not the best thing for your funding in the future. <laughs> but be that as it may, uh, it's actually been a very successful program. And if you've uh, seen the past couple of uh, Google IOs, right. uh, there have been announcements on the upcoming versions of Android 
moving from pins and passwords to that kind of authentication. So how you hold the the phone uh, and uh, how you actually type things in and what kinds of typos you make, all of that is part of authenticating you. Exactly. And so if we're so, and and we've looked at the number of techniques, some way weirder than the silly walks. Right. Uh, And all of them mind you with unmodified uh, hardware. Right. No changes to the, the phone or the or your laptop. And so we were or we have been so successful with that that I started thinking, well, what else can we do with these capabilities? Right. And so one of the that was one of the the flashes of some random neurons, as it were, in right. the back of my mind that that made me start thinking about applying it in a more adversarial role. And in particular, trying to solve what has traditionally been seen as an impossible problem, at least in the academic and practitioner cybersecurity space. So this is attribution. Exactly. Uh, where I, and for sure, five years ago, everybody said it was impossible, and then it started happening. Uh, and, and clearly, we now see it as a big opportunity, uh, as we should. Right? The, uh, our security is bad, but everybody's security is bad. And being able to uh, uh, take advantage of the attacker's bad security is going to be critical to doing attribution. Uh, you're absolutely right. And there's one more um, sort of insight, which is there's many fewer uh, secure uh, Oh, the bad guys. The bad this, guy, you can number them. Right? Exactly. Whereas the number of vulnerabilities and vulnerable devices and networks are just increasing. They're getting out. Of, they have gotten out of control. Oh, that's so. So one of the things, and we talked a little about this, a, a bit of, uh, about this earlier, is that you could, uh, you, just as everybody has a number, a CVE number for vulnerabilities, you could do CVE numbers for all the attackers and start to accumulate characteristics to them that slowly enable you to. One, track them as they wander through cyberspace and then ultimately fuse up their uh, identities with, uh, uh, with the uh, biometrics that you've collected. That's, that's right. That's exactly the, the point of the program. And, and the key here is that we're not talking about <clears throat> broad uh, sort of surveillance or collection. We're looking at very targeted capabilities focusing exactly on the known infrastructure and operators that are working against us. So the idea is, I mean, we've got people who are in networks watching attacks as they play out, as people uh, type in and say, oh, wait, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not on a Linux machine. I got to remember that uh, again. And they make these typos, they correct them. Uh, and, uh, um, and we realize that that's the same kind of behaviors we should be watching for everywhere. Uh, and it won't just be inside other networks. It could be, uh, it could be much more widespread. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the focus, the emphasis of the program is in collection of that kind of information uh, from uh, outside our what's called blue space, outside our friendly networks that we control, uh, but instead play uh, on the networks and infrastructure that the adversary controls. Oh, okay. So when you say red space and blue space, you're you're basically red forces versus blue forces. Uh, so the, you're you're hoping to automate the collection of biometric information about our attackers by going into their space and finding people who have those characteristics. Exactly. And not just biometric information, but also enough 
information about their actions as they are engaging in operations against us so that we can keep track, again, automatically. The whole point of this is to do it at large scale for potentially yeah. all the opposing operators uh, so that we don't have to have our analysts sit down and try to interpret the data and do that all the time. Oh, so it, it's all automated. It's all uh, big data and uh, uh, capabilities. And you're pulling these these bits of data slowly together. It's it's sort of like um, uh, the Schwarzenegger movies where the where the little bits assemble themselves <laughs> uh, into a, a, a cognizable identity. Uh, oh yeah, that's cool. Uh, uh, all right, uh, well, ugly gorilla, we are coming for you. Uh, that's that's fun. What else are you uh, working on? What else have you put out for uh, the uh, uh, innovative proposals and research in this uh, yeah. particular program? So. Part of it is the collection or the automated collection and synthesis of activities and of their, their cognitive and behavioral biometrics, as we call them. Right. Um, and, and, of course, we're open to any bright ideas in this space. Uh, but also, uh, one of the big problems that uh, we run into, even in the case of the ugly gorilla that you mentioned, mm -hmm. is, well, even if we have this capability and we've demonstrated that we can do things like this, how do we tell people? How do we tell the world? And the world may be the public. Right. The world may be the court system. The world may be our diplomatic partners. Could be anything. Right. So we're going to be doing this if we if we impose sanctions on somebody. Uh, we're going to have to be able to explain why we imposed the sanctions and what our evidence was. Exactly. And so for that, we need to be able to reveal uh, information that uh, would convince the our partners Ooh. without burning our sources and messages. So is the idea to sort of uh, automate the abstraction of that information up one or two levels from uh, uh, disclosure so that uh, um, you aren't disclosing exactly what tool you use to get into exactly what system, but you're able to say, well, we were able to carry out an intrusion against uh, a, a victim-like network. Well, so that would be one way of doing it. Uh -huh. uh, the problem, of course, then becomes how believable that, yes, does, that right. uh, evidence, as it were, uh, is. And so uh, one approach we're looking at as part of the program is can we actually find, knowing this ground truth, knowing perhaps some things that the operator has done, maybe not the full picture, can we find in all the data sets that are out there from commercial threat intelligence, from mm -hmm. available shared information, whatnot, uh, find all the breadcrumbs on their activity that we wouldn't have a reason to put together, but now we do because we know the real story. So now you know, uh, let's, let's, let's see how this goes. You, you, you've first figured out that uh, this person, it's the same persona in three or four network intrusion events and that they have certain characteristics. Uh, uh, then you finally fuse that to an actual identity. Uh, and when do you present the evidence that you have? At, at that stage or do you do some abstracting further? So the idea is, again, we do this uh, c uh, this uh, composing of an alternate story as I uh, oh, so you at the say, same time. So you can say this guy 
um, let's say it's ugly gorilla. Um, we we are have confidence that we've found this person because we found multiple redundant attacks using exactly the same tools, uh, and we find multiple reasons to believe that ugly gorilla's real name is Jack Wang. Uh, and so we don't have to show you all of the things we found. We're going to show you 60%, the safe 60%. Got it. Exactly right. And and ideally. That 60% would also include uh, data that would be relevant to uh, the enterprises, the private enterprises and the government agencies that we want to protect and we want to give indications of compromise and hints and clues, but we really can't most of the time. So I I have to say this is the first time DARPA has uh, um, started on a project where I think they could actually use some help from lawyers, but we're glad to provide the uh, little legal assistance to uh, construction of the evidence uh, against these uh, these attackers. Uh, so other top other things that you're working on, just to get a, a, a broad view of what DARPA is doing in the area of cybersecurity, what are some of the other projects that DARPA has going? So um, there's a number of program managers uh, in cybersecurity, and that reflects the the, the interest and priority, of course. So I have uh, personally, I have a couple of other programs that I have started in recent years at DARPA. One is called Transparent Computing, and the goal is to uh, make it impossible for an adversary to live or to hide within an enterprise when they make one mistake or when one fact, a single fact about their presence in that enterprise becomes known. Well, that's critical because they're, 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 there's adversaries in everybody's network okay, and they're moving around and the whole point is to move laterally within the network. And so if you can catch people moving laterally in the network and uh, bounce them, that's terrific. And not only find them as they move laterally, but once you've found them, find out everything they have done within your enterprise. Going backwards. Exactly. Across all the systems in your enterprise and uh, across time, as it were. So no matter what backdoors they have put in, no matter what reconnaissance they have put in. Oh, you can see everything they did. That's That's right. That's the idea. Uh Oh, that's great. Uh, Very exciting. So so that's one. The other program called uh, LADS, Leveraging the Analog Domain for Security. And that started uh, to look at the problem of securing the Internet of Things, as it's called. Right, which is because they're unupdatable and uh, unpatchable. uh, uh, And uh, um, uh, most of the people who've sold them to you are probably out of business by now. Uh, So the question is, how do you do 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 security on those devices? Exactly. I mean, we, we generally do a bad job doing security, period. Uh, but, but on these things, it's just going to be It's awful. impossible. And so the, the idea is to use what's, what are called their unintentional emissions. So the radio signals that they emit uh, as a byproduct of computing. Uh, oh, so now what you're doing is that you're, you're doing a kind of electronic attack on the machine to, to figure out what, what process are you running right now, uh, which has its own electronic signature, and with these devices, it's not uh, going to be shielded at all, and there's only a limited number of things they can be doing. And then you can probably tell the difference between uh, turn on the camera and turn off the camera, uh, and so then you just monitor them all as though you were attacking them, uh, and when they start doing things you don't like, you get out a hammer. Uh, that's exactly right. So. <laughs> There's techniques that that can be borrowed from other domains. I don't like to think of it as attacking so much as signals intelligence. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the advantage here is that uh, as we're defending, we can legitimately be very close to the devices that we protect. So a lot of problems go away. 
Yeah. Uh, but but you're exactly right. Of course, it, I mean, but attackers could use this, right? So it, it, once you know how to measure what's going on in the devices, if you can put your measuring device in a room full of uh, um, uh, industrial control systems, you can tell how well your attack is working by getting reports back uh, uh, from your independent uh, LADS device, right? Uh, you're right. Uh, almost everything, if not everything, I'll, I'll put almost just because I don't like to be absolute, but almost everything is uh, is dual purpose right. yes, so in that, cyber, yeah. right? Oh, well, don't let the State Department know. They'll, they'll impose export controls on you. Uh, so th- those are the things you're doing. Uh, what's DARPA doing that's gotten particular interest or that you think has a lot of uh, potential? Well, so there's a number of programs. Uh, I think when I tried to enumerate them, there were uh, there were at least 10 other programs wow. active right now. Uh, I think the one that's coming up uh, very soon is Cyber Grand Challenge, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, uh, which is a challenge um, that is going to be uh, co-located with Black Hat this year right. on August 4. Uh, and the goal is to demonstrate uh, a machine versus machine capture the flag competition. Oh, sweet. So the AI in the system and a- defending and attacking the system. That's right. Yeah. I, I have to say I, I think that has enormous potential, so much potential that scares the crap out of me. Well, <laughs> well we recognize that uh, that it may make some folks perhaps a little uncomfortable. So the environment uh, that the machines are going to be – uh, competing is constructed so that so they can't get out exactly. <laughs> but but you know the problem is this is likely to work right. If you wanna if you wanna keep track of everything with your transparent computing, if you want it to happen in real time and you want to stop people uh, right now and then track them back and wipe out what they did, you're gonna need something <clears throat> at least faster than a human being and probably smarter. Uh, and so AI this this looks like a great AI application, uh, and an application for evolutionary learning, because every time you get pwned, it's a failure, and the machine should learn uh, to do something. This is like learning to play Go. Every <clears throat> every time you lose, you should learn what happened and how can I prevent that from happening. Every time you get pwned, you should learn from that and figure out how to stop it, uh, um, which means that you have to, as the designer of this thing, let go of the machine and let it do stuff on its own so that, you know, because you can't tell it, uh, don't do that, do this. Uh, it has to learn by itself and it'll learn a lot faster without you. Um, which means you're basically letting this AI loose to hunt in your network. And the logical response to that is to turn somebody else's AI loose in your network to uh, hunt the hunter or at least evade it. Uh, and and that strikes me as basically creating this co-evolutionary predator-prey or co-predator, whatever, relationship in which uh, um, the machine is very quickly learning to be very aggressive to attackers who may well be human beings uh, and boy, that strikes me as crossing a line that we should be a little uncomfortable with. Right, and and so these are still very early days. Yeah, uh, I don't think we're anywhere near the no, we evolutionary. Uh, <laughs> Although we won't we won't get much warning when we go over that line. <laughs> uh, maybe not, uh, but uh, certainly there's uh, there's a lot of um, 
uh, FUD, as I call it, about yeah, yeah. AI these days. And, and I think if you look at all the scientific studies on what is in fact possible, um, it's, it's much less uh, revolutionary. I, 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 I believe that. It's not like they're going to kill us, they, they're, they're, but they are designed to kill intruders. And the intruders the are designed, yes, the, the software intruders. Uh, and, uh, you know, that learning to hunt what are prototypically human beings on a network uh, um, is a little uncomfortable. I, I, I would do it because they deserve it. But uh, uh, I worry that they will come back with AI because they've got big budgets, too, uh, and will certainly Well, have we have antivirus right now. And that's, that's exactly its purpose. And it's an autonomous agent that lives on your device. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yes. Uh, that's why I think that we're going to see uh, hunting AI developed in this area first because we need it so badly uh, and uh, uh, because it seems like it ought to work better than anything else we've got. Uh, yes. And, and I think if you looked at the competition rules for, for CGC, you'd find that there's actually a lot of emphasis placed on the defense learning from the attacks yes, and devising your own patches. And when I say you, I mean the system. Uh, the only thing the uh, the owners of the seven teams or the seven teams that are going to be participating are, will be allowed to do is press enter to start the program, and that's it. They won't be allowed to touch the computer until the competition is over. That's very cool. Anything else? Uh, I, I, I kind of remember the Adams program, Insider Threat Detection, which I thought was... In, in some respects, trying to automate the process of identifying uh, inappropriate behavior on the network, which is similar to some of the other things that we're talking about. Yeah, so, so that was looking at uh, high-level behaviors in across a network, across an enterprise, to find indicators, early indicators of uh, malicious insider activity, such as fraud or sabotage, things of that nature. So that program is actually coming to a close. Uh, technically, it has ended uh, just past uh, last month, although there are a few efforts going on. And, and I'm happy to say that some of the uh, outcomes are actually being commercialized cool. right now. So so I'm very excited. Do we that. know who's commercializing them? Do you, oh, you don't, can't talk about that? Okay, that's fine. Uh, well, uh, uh, Angelus, uh, in closing, we always ask our uh, guests if they have any uh, – uh, speeches or public appearances that they're going to be making that they want to promote. Uh, any, I, we have about a week. People have a week if they want to get uh, uh, propose uh, that Skynet search for uh, uh, the attackers. Uh, um, uh, so the, the the program applications close. Yeah, yeah, the the proposal due date is uh, June seven at okay. noon. All right. Uh, I think we probably don't have time, especially since it's going to take us a day or two to get the podcast out. But uh, this was a terrific uh, uh, discussion and uh, uh, very validating about where the possibilities that I've been thinking about uh, uh, might take us in terms of defense uh, and exciting in terms of application of near-term new technology to this problem. Thank you. Well, all right. Thank you very much to Angelus Karamidis, uh, also to Michael Vadis, uh, Maury Shank, uh, and Alan Cohn. Uh, uh, if you have feedback about this or other episodes, uh, please send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or leave us a review on uh, uh, iTunes or other podcast aggregators. This has been episode 118 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up next week, we 
have Kevin Kelly, author of The Inevitable, uh, who has a far more uh, cheerful take on the future of technology than uh, I foreshadowed in this discussion, um, uh, but uh, a very thoughtful guy who's been uh, at the forefront of technology since the well in the early 90s. Uh, uh, we'll also have Congressman Will Hurd, uh, one of Congress's um, uh, more thoughtful tech uh, advocates, uh, and Jamie Elizabeth Smith from BitFury. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, then for those programs and others as we again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and